it's great to see you. Um, great for us to be able to share some time together uh, and to look again at this, this amazing passage. It's, it's actually been really um, significant to me very personally. Uh, so I'm delighted that we're able to spend a little bit more time uh, in this amazing account of Isaiah and the temple and his vision of God. But the question I want to ask this afternoon is, is this. What does it mean to be truly confronted with God? And why does it matter? What are the implications for us? And what does, what does it say about our attitude towards God? Ash mentioned from uh, Tozer last week. The first thing that comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a brilliant quote. But let's dig a little bit deeper and let's say, what does it mean when we're confronted by God? One of the, um, I, I love him in so many ways, one of the great, I guess you would probably describe him as one of the popular Western intellectuals. Um, he, he's, he's kind of, spanned a huge array of activities is Stephen Fry. Uh, if you want to understand about the, the mindset of the Greeks and their, their ideas around the gods, his book Mythos is, is genius. It, it characterizes the way that the Greeks thought about their origins and thought about God, the gods. At the same time, uh, Stephen very openly and very uh, powerfully communicates what his attitude and what his thought is towards God. Uh, he says this, Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and, pro and pain? That's a really incredibly powerful thing. And um, I, I, in one sense, I thank him for saying it because he, he's able to put into words perhaps what many people think. What does this particular passage do for us in coming to terms with that idea? You might be actually feeling, particularly over these past couple of years, uh, kind of unmoored, destabilized, I guess, by the horror that we've seen over the past couple of years. What does this account of God and the nature of God, and as we've been looking at the holiness of God what can we draw from it and what can we understand we see in our text this amazing sight and we see the seraphim who are declaring three times we looked at it last week they, they simply say holy 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 it's almost as though <laughs> it's almost as though they're lost for any other words I think that's what Isaiah is trying to convey to us that there is a grandeur and a majesty where the only words that they can think of, in a sense, is holy. Uh, and they are surrounding this God, which Isaiah sees. But to really come to terms with it, I think we've got to jump into a little bit of the context and understand what's going on. We see right at the very beginning in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The, the, the writer of Isaiah doesn't lose, doesn't lose a single word, really, in conveying to us the significance of what is going on at this moment in time. On the one hand, you've got this foreign nation which are um, 
which are under huge pressure, you have the critical event, event of the death of a king. Uh, and you can straight away see that uh, Isaiah is confronted with the death of a king does not undermine the, the fact that the true king is on his throne. That's the first thing that we can see by this. In this kind of moment of turmoil, the king is on his throne. <laughs> that's something that's really important uh, for us maybe right at this moment to understand in the turmoil and the chaos of the lives that we are particularly uh, surrounded by and the, 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 the overwhelming uh, destabilizing, destabilizing impact, this particular text jumps into our, into our minds and it says, in spite of the fact of what you see around you, the king is on his throne. That's the first thing that we see. Second thing we see, which is, I think is actually quite important, is Uzziah, the king, has died. <laughs> if you know anything about Uzziah, and thankfully 2 Chronicles, chapter 26, 16 to 21, if, you, if you're at home, you've got the recording. If you're here with us this afternoon, uh, you can jump back on and grab that uh, reference and you can go back and see what actually happened with Uzziah because it has profound significance to what we're seeing here. Uzziah was king and he was a very successful king, but he, he became so confident and self-assured that he goes into the temple and he does something which he is not to do. If you know anything of the huge history of the way God's people have been brought to this point, there is a very segregated group of people who are the priests, who are to act on behalf of the people. And one of the things that they do is they burn incense. It's one of the, one of the offerings that they bring. So, so there is this intermediary role, this role of the priest, and this sweet aroma, we did a little bit about that. Matt covered the aroma of Christmas. If you want to catch up on that, that's online. That's a great, a, a great talk where we see the aroma that is so important in the Bible. And the, the, Uzziah, however, says, I'm king, I'm going to go in, and I am going to burn the incense. I've reached the point where God will accept me. And credit to the priests, they follow him in and they confront him and they say, you are about to do something which you ought not to do. You are, you are barred from what you are about to do. And the way that it portrays in, in, in the narrative, it's brilliantly done. He's holding the, uh, the ladle, there is a better word. I can't remember what it is. He's holding the ladle with the incense and he turns to them to berate them and at that moment where he turns to berate them, they see leprosy breaking out on his skin. And Uzziah, from that moment on, lives the rest of his life secluded even though he remains king. He, he is secluded, he is leprous, and because of his leprous condition, he is now barred from the temple. See, the, see what's going on there. Uzziah says, I want to do what all of us want to do, which is shape God to accept me the way I want to be, the way I want to worship, the way I want you to accept me coming before you. And God says, in that moment, 
in, at the point where he is doing something which is an act of worship, God says no. And more than that, I'm going to bar you. So actually, in that first verse, we've got two people who are coming to God to worship him. In a way, we've got Uzziah because we've got the backstory of what happened to him. And now we've got Isaiah coming before God. So we've got Uzziah who was barred from the presence of God because of his demand that God be conformed to him. And then we've got Isaiah coming in and he's saying, I have now come to worship this God. And right at that moment, Isaiah is equally confronted in the most dramatic way. He goes into the temple and he sees the Lord seated on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. Look at verse 5, which is one of the main verses we're going to look at this afternoon. The response to that, if we've created the context, now I want to, to look at the next step in the journey, which you could describe as Isaiah's destruction. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That's Isaiah's response. The response of Isaiah, it's kind of an, ex, an exclamation. He kind of is out with it. I'm ruined. The same word in, in the Hebrew language can be translated as devastated, destroyed, annihilated, crushed. It's not a small word that he's using. He's using a dramatic word because he's seen God. Now, again, if you spend a lot of, bit, a lot of time around the Bible, we can end up in a trap. We can end up in a trap of knowing something and kind of diluting the impact of it. One of the things that we know of in the journey through the Old Testament is that seeing God is going to crush people. Moses asks that he might see God. And God says, what? well, you can't see me because if you see me, you're going to die. So what, what we'll do is we'll put you in, in a kind of a gap in the rock and I'll just pass by and you'll see my skirts it's the same idea, the robes kind of passing by. You'll see this kind of glory pass by you. And Moses shone for days. It's kind of his old demeanor. He was impacted by the glory and the holiness of God. But do you see how Isaiah sees this? His response to seeing God is to look at himself in relation to that God. And it's precisely that that stops us from diluting and kind of knowing it as a kind of factual matter that we see God and we're going to die. This is a big thing. I'm a man of unclean lips. His, his recognition of seeing God makes him realize that he is morally bankrupt. 
He is just morally devastated. It's almost as though, uh, it's almost as though the light that he tries to shine of his rightness to be before God is like a match coming into context with the sun. It's the magnitude of of moral righteousness and glory of the God that he he sees in front of him results in him saying, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. That's why I'm ruined. Because of who I am, coming face to face with this God. I'm unclean. I live with people that are unclean. And now my eyes have seen God. I'm done for. I'm devastated. I'm so thankful for a guy called Hubbard who wrote this. Because I think he captures it brilliantly. Such confrontation cannot help but produce despair. For the finite, the mortal, the incomplete, and the fallible to encounter the infinite, the eternal, the self-consistent, and the infallible is to know the futility and hopelessness of one's existence. That's a brilliant quote. Anybody wants it, give me a shout, drop a message, I'll send it over to you. I think it is incredible. When we are confronted by the moral glory of that God, we know the futility and hopelessness of our existence. Every one of us. We're nothing. It's kind of like it's like kind of like for many of us uh, who we are as people in some whatever we decide, even even the kind of the, the the most corrupt of people will justify their corruption to a sense of good somehow. It's doing good for something, my family or my community. But for many of us, our sense of goodness, when it is crushed by a sense of transcendent glory we realize that we are nothing if there is no God if there is no God that is the worst place to be because when we realize that we are crushed by our own moral ethical failures We have nowhere to go. Albert Camus, the existential writer in the book The Fall, writes about a man called Clemence who comes to terms with this. He comes to terms with the emptiness of life because of his own moral corruptness. He was an upright guy. But he writes this. He argues with himself over his prior acts of kindness. But quickly discovers that it's an argument he cannot win. He reflects, for example, that whenever he had helped the blind man across the street, something he especially enjoyed doing, 
he would doff his hat to the man. Since the blind man obviously cannot see his acknowledgement, Clemence asks, to whom was it addressed? And he realizes that the doffing of his cap is to the public around so that they might know what he has done. He wrote that back in, oh, can't remember when. He did it well before social media. But now our moral uprightness and the doffing of our caps are played out in social media. The right that we have done. And then we realize that we have got nothing. That's a terrible place to be if there is no God. But Isaiah realizes actually that he is in a more devastating place. Camus says there's no meaning. And therefore life has no meaning. <laughs> Isaiah realizes that there is meaning. In this holy God in front of him. But he realizes that he has no part in it. And he is crushed and ruined. When he sees the moral glory of the God in front of him. He realizes I have no part in this. Because of who I am. Do you know what though? There is grace. Because alongside that moral glory of that God. In the very character, in the very being, in the very essence of that God. Who is that beautiful, majestic, infinite glory and holiness. There is also astounding grace. And there's a little hint in verse 1. It's a bit vague, and it's a possibility. But I think like Moses, Isaiah is kind of shielded from God. I've seen God, but what does he actually say? His robes have filled the temple. Well, hang on a sec. If his robes have filled the temple, how has he seen God? It's exactly the same as Moses. He sees the, the trains of his, of his skirts passing by him. And that's enough for him to see the glory of God. God is already displaying his graciousness to Isaiah. Because he is not destroying him. By fully revealing his glory to him. That's the first little indication of grace. But what does he say? <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips. What happens? One of the seraphim that are crying, holy, 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 go to the altar and take one of the coals from the altar and place it on the lips of Isaiah. And this is completely my fault. I asked for verse 6 to be added on, and I should have had verse 7 added on as well. So I'll read it to you. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, 
This touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. Isn't that breathtaking? Isn't that the God who confronts Isaiah? I am going to take you to a place where you are utterly crushed because I am so right and holy and glorious. But you will at the same time know that from the altar there is a way for you to be made clean. A little coal will cleanse your lips and your sin will be atoned for. Because that is the broadening out of the character of the holiness of God. He is at once morally perfection and at the same gracious in his desire to build that gap between you and me and to say, come and know me. Come close to me. See me. Hear me. Be with me. I love you. Seven hundred and fifty, seven hundred and thirty ish years later. What we see is a little kind of moment in the life of one man. We see it rolled out for the whole of the world to see. Because the astounding grace that Isaiah experienced in the temple becomes the astounding grace that is declared in the gospel of Jesus. Because Jesus came. And what we see in Isaiah is a moment where there is a means for our sin to be atoned for we fully see in Jesus. But on this occasion, God doesn't send one of the seraphim to the altar to take a coal so that Isaiah's lips might be made clean and his sin atoned for. He doesn't remain hidden. He reveals himself. He becomes one with us. His moral superiority is displayed to everyone. And yet, as we sang at Christmas time, he is veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. John the Baptist puts it like this. Behold, or look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Lamb is the connection to the coal on the altar. Because Jesus doesn't point us to an altar. He places himself on the altar. The robes that shroud God from Isaiah being crushed by the glory of that God are the robes that are stripped from Jesus so that his nakedness is seen by all.
And as he is held up on a cross, the glory of the throne of heaven becomes a cruel Roman crucifixion. And then, and this is the bit which for me, intellectually, captures the sheer godness of the glory of the message of the gospel. God says this to us. If there was a time when looking on me would cause you to die, the time has now come when looking on me causes you to live. I don't think humanity could have conceived of the glory, of the genius, of that way in which we will be saved. Not because of something we do, but because of something he has done. And he says, come to me, every one of you, who are troubled, who are weak, who are burdened, who are ruined and crushed, like Isaiah, and he says, I'll lift you up. Because as Isaiah declares, I'm crushed, he later goes on to write that it, cr it pleased the Father to crush him. And that is where we see the moral superiority of Jesus being presented as an offer for you and me. And God says, take the moral superiority of Jesus as yours. Because your moral superiority is crushed in an instant when confronted with me. You see, that is grace. And Stephen, like every human being, whoever has been and ever will be, there will come a moment when we will all be morally crushed by the superiority of the glory of the God who we stand before. But this is the hope that that God invites us to take upon ourselves his moral glory and says, I love you.